Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. And in this episode, Nick Sherrod, also of Label Sessions, talks to Chris Michaels. Chris is a creative innovation leader with experience spanning across several organizations, such as the British Museum and the National Gallery, spearheading both of their digital transformations into the modern day. Now, he's the director of strategy at Bolton & Quinn, as well as finding his own advisory agency, all in the name of strategic change for a digital future for cultural and creative industries. Nick finds out more. The good bit that I saw this, Chris, is I'm not going to attempt to introduce you because there's so many different things that are involved in your world just now. So first of all, how would you describe yourself? Uh, I am an advisor and consultant in the creative and cultural sector. Okay, quite neat. And then in that backstory, there's quite a mix of different organizations that are in there. Even now, you're working across quite a few yeah, yeah, organizations. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm someone who's been on a journey and represents, you know, a changing world in lots of ways. Uh, I started out as an academic. Uh, I've worked my way through half of the creative industries, at least. I've not done craft, so there's still a knitting bit yet to do. Uh, and now I've kind of come to a point where I think I can help lots of people on a diverse range of questions. So uh, setting out on my own journey to, um, I said, advise and consult wi- widely and interestingly uh, across creativity, culture, and the kind of future of businesses. That's uh, something I'm excited to do. Yeah, and, and before we get into this, the subject matter of it, how different do you find it or do you find yourself leading in a different way when you're in a an institution like a museum or a gallery or when you're being independent or when you work with a smaller company I, th- I think maybe my conclusion is I was a terrible executive uh, uh as a kind of senior manager because I don't find it that different in a way I think the things I'm interested in are kind of asking interesting questions and trying to find interesting answers and you know in some of the places I've been I've been lucky enough I think to be brilliantly supported by incredible kind of operational teams who can deliver against those questions. But to a, to a large extent, that from doing this now for most of the last year, I don't find it that radically different from being in-house. I think the core discipline of kind of working out what question to ask, trying to find interesting answers, and then trying to do a certain kind of thing I think I'm good at uh, remains the same. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it either way, but uh, I think there's a kind of continuity there, which uh, surprises me in lots of ways. Okay. That's interesting. And do you think that would be the same if you, if you're like, it were a different type of leader inside, inside a museum? So I'm interested that digital is kind of this thing that's uh, emerged in the museums and galleries world, but it's always stayed digital slightly, slightly as an annex. I mean, do you, do you, do you recognize that? Do you feel like digital inside these organizations are still a kind of separate thing or do you feel it's now in the core? I mean, in a way, it's all I've ever done. I mean, from from my first geek back in, you know, 2004 and five, and then so in a first real kind of, in a way, proper job when I went into uh, HarperCollins Publishers in 2006, right from that point, it was obvious that kind of digital was the chance to ask a different question. Uh, really, whatever, whatever digital as a kind of practical activity meant, it was a chance to kind of have a different perspective and ask different questions about it. And so, you know, right back then when I was given the chance to kind of start a new publishing imprint in 2008, which seemed absolutely bonkers at the time, so it was even more bonkers than anyone would let me do that now. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it was because I was kind of found this space internally to kind of provide a different perspective about what a publishing imprint was for. And I think for whatever reason, I've kind of always found those niches since. So whether that's, 
you you couldn't really put a professional map on it, but somehow I find those spaces and those spaces find me. So um, whatever job whatever job opportunities I've been responding to, they kind of I gravitate towards that space and then kind of occupy it. Hopefully, fairly well. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing that's interesting within that even that story is you're leading, or have historically been leading very kind of creative teams. The teams have taken on a very creative challenge, but in environments where you know you have to there's the the there's the big idea and there's also a very much linked to an operational question or a kind of question as to how that starts to turn in but are you conscious of kind of creating the space in the team for the creativity to happen or do you not think about it like that um well i think i think the first answer to that is to kind of respect the operational side right so whether it's harper collins or a tv company or one of the world's big museums you have to kind of kind of marvel almost at the brilliant operationalizing of creativity you know Harper Collins all those years ago 1500 new books a year you know imagine 1500 authors to deal with uh plus 20,000 authors in the backlist from you know the most famous to the most niche uh the difficulty of answering every creative question about what does the cover look like what's it you know through to exhibitions you know in museums where you're trying to put 80 paintings on a wall fundamentally but you need thousands of people to participate in the process of doing that. So first of all, kind of respecting the operationalizing of creativity, I'm massive. Also, I recognize I should stay the hell out of the way of most of that operationalizing because I'll tend to break some of it. And, uh, you know, I'm, if it's about doing then, yeah, and kind of delivering some of that at the end, I'm not the best person in the world for it. So, you know, again, it's about kind of creating spaces to ask questions, respecting the kind of authority of the institutions that help deliver at the end of that but kind of forcing them down some different and interesting paths to make new spaces for them to operate in which i think again i've i've, I've always found a kind of interesting way to do and um, but it, it, the only reason i'm going to pick up on that is sometimes you know through the label sessions presents podcast we're talking to people who are in things like creative agency and sometimes they can be a bit of an attitude from that world around the kind of the creative thing and keeping it separate from the rest of the thing. Whereas it seems like your style, even the way you're speaking and knowing a bit about the way you work, is kind of bringing everybody into the tent, so to speak. It only works like that. I mean, what really, I guess the truth, the truth of my career so far is if you added up the age of the core institutions at the heart of it, you get quite quickly to about a thousand, right? You know, National Gallery, British Museum, HarperCollins, that's 700 and something years before you've even started, right? And I work a lot with, you know, I'm working with Oxford University at about 850 years. You know, that the, the age and maturity and kind of depth of those, you can only you can only bring them on a journey if you kind of respect that history. I'm very kind of anti the language of kind of disruptive innovation. I think it's done an awful lot of damage to the world in the last 40 years. It was, you know, it was right when uh, Clay Christensen kind of came up with it, but I think we can look back now and just realize, actually, guys, you, you broke a lot of stuff that really mattered to kind of how we function as a uh, as a species. And, you know, you can only, certainly only kind of function in those kind of historic institutions and, and commercial ones as much as kind of not, not-for-profit ones if you kind of respect their past and find a way to bring people on the journey with you. Because that, if it's just not going to work otherwise. And so that kind of very hard-edged, I said, kind of creative disruptor, creative destructor role, I just, I just don't believe it's the right thing to do. And it's certainly not the way I would try and operate in the world. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because the, the word was developed as a way of talking around a bunch of new entities 
disrupting big entities through a quite specific strategic play, but very quickly it got adopted by quite big entities as almost like a value system of a way you could do tech. That no wonder it caused a problem. It's an interesting kind of. I mean, my my cynical encounter with it was when the the startup I ran for a couple of years, Mindshapes, which was started by a whole bunch of you know genius people who'd gone through the mobile games industry. What I realized from seeing them operate, and they'd sold two companies for over a billion between them between the in the decade before I got there, was it basically it was a very sophisticated sales tactic. You know, is that they're one of their kind of chief guys would go and do a kind of speech to say, well, you know, look, guys, this new company is gonna be is gonna disrupt electronic parts. You know, it's gonna be the end of their business model. And whatever that meant, what it really meant was we're gonna sell the company to electronic arts for a vast amount of money within the next twenty four months. So you know, for almost from the start, that kind of innovation process was baked in as a protective measure on the side of the corporate and kind of playing on their fears and anxieties really much more than it was actually about disrupting anything. It was a kind of, you know, a way to scare the hell out of some, you know, very smart, very well, uh, you know, executives and make sure that they were kind of buying the next uh, the next innovation down the line. Yeah, I, I, I can I can see that definitely. It's almost an investment category it created and then had this kind of, this kind of sales element alongside it. So... The, the thing I did want to ask, though, almost the counter to that, is interesting the way you talk about the past of the organizations that you're working with. Does it feel different creating digital things, digital products, where you're working with a brand like the British Museum or the National Gallery, where which people really love, like people react really strongly to, but there's a kind of a connection to those names in a way that's not even, even calling them brands sort of cheapens them a bit. Like people love those things. Well, they're not they're not brands. And I mean, one of, one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life with, was with one of the founders of Pentagram, who had done the branding for the British Museum, and he just said, you know, the whole idea of the British Museum's brand was to disappear. You know, that if you look at it, the visual language behind it, the British Museum is always stepping backwards into the shadows and letting the object speak, and in no other kind of category of kind of. Uh, Kind of brand-led endeavor would that ever really be the case you know never does you know nike disappear and the pair of trainers just speaks for itself the two are always there in tandem and they they reinforce each other for him for john this was like you know this is the british museum's got to go and just the object alone is what matters and so you know that i mean that's one of those kind of you know kind of life-changing conversations that's kind of lived with me ever since although it's really difficult to deal with in actual kind of you know like in reality but you think about the kind of encounters people have with the British Museum or the National Gallery, the encounters are are not institutional or brand at a brand level. The encounters are with objects and experience and kind of artworks. And that's very fundamental. You know, every great story you hear about the way the British Museum or the National Gallery changed someone's life is not a story about being in the British Museum. It's a story about an encounter with an object in the British Museum and the way it shapes and reshapes someone's kind of part. There's an amazing curator there, I think, who you know, tells this great story about how as a five-year-old, he came to the British Museum with his mum and dad and he saw a board game, of a first board game, 5,000 years old, and he kind of looked at it and thought, this is me. Like, and his whole life since has been a journey to understand what that board game was, how to play it, and how to kind of understand the language we're having like the whole journey and so he's of course extreme example but that's very fundamental to what an encounter with museums means and with cultural institutions in general means is that 
thing is always stepping backwards and the work is always stepping forward. Again, you don't go to the Royal Opera House to love the Royal Opera House. You go to the Royal Opera House to, you know, watch the Nibelungen or whatever it is you've gone there for. And so that kind of, that transaction is very unusual. I don't, I, I've not encountered it elsewhere in the kind of industrial world, but it, the things it do there does therefore are very profound and very kind of life altering potentially. And so I think I've always felt lucky to get the chance to play with that in an interesting way because, again, it's just a very unusual situation. Yeah. I mean, and when you look back, are there moments like that for you? I mean, did you come into this looking to work in, in culture or did you come into it through thinking there were interesting questions? I mean, again, everything's a complex personal story, right? But I mean, in a way, I ducked. I ducked out of advertising after about nine months I lasted because I couldn't quite rationalize to myself why such brilliantly smart people would have such brilliantly smart discussions about things I found it very difficult to care about. Uh, you know, we did no disrespect to the, you know, the very interesting clients I used to work for. I just couldn't like, just, it, just, it wasn't there somewhere. So, you know, going into the creative industries where I love books, I love films, I love TV, like all these things I kind of love, whether on a kind of very surface or very deep level, it made sense. At the point where I went into culture, it was after two years being CEO of a startup and kind of, in a way, it was more about behavior change. Startups are amazing because you get the chance to kind of invent everything in the morning and then change it all again in the evening. You know, it's a kind of, it is an open, it's an open book, right? So you, you create your own rules. And then you put those rules into contact reality with reality and see if they work. So, and I kind of felt at the end of that journey that I needed to try something different. And just by kind of happenstance, this job uh, at the British Museum kind of fell out of the sky. And I went to meet the director there, Neil McGregor, one of the kind of famous figures of 21st, 20th and 21st century culture. And he just kind of told me this story about what he thought museums meant and how kind of transformative he thought they could be to the world. And it just kind of stuck and it was like, well, shit, I've got to go do this, right? And at least find out. And he's such a good storyteller that the reality and the story are not, they don't always marry up, but the dream definitely lurks there. And you like, you have to, you know, you have to kind of believe in its potential. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast. For live sessions of advice, mentor or sometimes to collaborate on ideas to find out more visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team yeah really interesting i mean and do you i mean your journey is really interesting therefore because you've kind of i was trying to capture it before but saying the different types of organizations actually different sectors you've worked in different models of organization do you looking back do you think you've become a different type of leader as you've gone through that journey do you notice things about yourself that have changed yeah i mean look you you grow up, right? So the kind of 20, 26 year old kid who did want to kind of be a digital disruptor in HarperCollins, you know, News Corps organization, uh, fundamentally quite conservative. Publishers are quite conservative organizations by their nature, very radical on content, of course, a, a lot of the time, but uh, very conservative about products and form because they're such high volume product organizations, you've got to get the next hardback paperbacks you know, thing out the door. So, you know, the kind of the wannabe disruptive kid who wanted to you know, run a different kind of publishing company inside a big publishing company. You know, I've learned, I've learned a lot of good lessons about kind of a little bit less hard headedness and, you know, a bit of 
there was a guy I met there who had been the publisher of, you know, Dan Brown and Terry Pratchett and, you know, big, big guys. And he just kept saying to me, sotto voce, just like, take it down. <laughs> you know, because he, because he knew how to win author contracts and we were going out for these author contracts and, you know, sometimes I would kind of, I'd play the kind of change too heavy. And, you know, it was just like, just, just keep it down here. And again, it's one of those lessons you learn from really, you know, brilliant people as you deal with them and just kind of take the tone of it down and then let the change speak for itself as you go along the way, you know, try and capture it. But ultimately, if things aren't really changing, however well, however heavily you kind of uh, describe the story around it, uh, people will realize pretty fast. So what I've always tried to do thereafter is kind of actually make real change, but kind of capture that capture the story around it in the right terms so that people can go out and understand it. Interesting. And, and then when you, when you turn to now and you look around, are there, are there things happening which you're, which you're especially excited about or interested about around digital culture just now? I, I do think we're at a very profound moment. And, you know, one of the things I've done just, you know, the last couple of weeks is start this new newsletter about uh, what I call creative R&D. So meeting points between kind of uh, culture new ideas and technology and you know just writing the first two episodes of it you know you realize how profound a moment we're in so on one side i'm super interested in the rise of what i'm calling the, the immersive institutions so these places like outernet the sphere in las vegas these kind of buildings kind of caked in screens from kind of top to bottom that are very fast becoming a kind of meeting point between art and the commercial sphere and redefining both the metrics and kind of expectations of engagements of audiences so you know immersive experience you know the outlet in london is within six months like the third most visited attraction in the uk you know it's just behind the natural history museum as the and by the end of this year we'll have almost certainly overtaken it so this new type of institution is emerging fast there's probably about 70 i reckon in the world now and it's going to reach, it is like the digital age competitor for museums and galleries. You know, we've been kind of waiting to see really what it is. And I think it's here and emerged now. And at the same time, you know, again, just in this last two weeks, the biggest kind of cultural infrastructure project since the 19th century is opening in London. So the East Bank, you know, where UCL East, uh, University of the Arts, London College of Fashion, and then, uh, you know, V&A East, and these other things will open in the next couple of years. That's the biggest thing since Prince Albert kind of started dumping things in South Kensington back in the, the mid-19th century. And what's interesting to me is that it's all about the meeting point between creativity and technology. You know, London College of Fashion, that's where their uh, kind of fashion, di digital fashion operations will sit. Uh, one of my good friends, Brigitte Zix, who runs the BA and MA in digital media at UCL, that's where they will sit, is in that new building on UCL East. You know, culture and technology being kind of pushed together in a new geography that's going to kind of reshape London for the, potentially the next hundred years, the way that South Ken has shaped it for the last 150. So, you know, we are at a super interesting moment in time. We don't quite know the kind of, of course, know the kind of destinations and outcomes of it. But like, it's a really interesting point in the world and a point where I think people get that the creative industries are kind of like critical drivers of what this country means. You know, we understand that it's driving the economy properly, but the stuff that's the outcome of that really for me is starting to emerge at kind of at pace. And so I see, you know, it's a very kind of interesting moment. 
And it's interesting that I'm, I'm interested in the fact you, you call the work you do R&D and you call it the, like exploring this moment R&D. Is, is there a reason why you use those kind of terms? Because you could talk about innovation, you could talk about futures, you know, like why those words? Yeah, I, th I think it's, I mean, there's a kind of intentional politics behind it, which is, you know, the arts, culture, creativity have been cut off from the language of R&D and innovation. I mean, almost from the start. So, you know, you go back to when the OECD defined what innovation is after the Second World War. It's all about science and technology, right? Those those are the definitions that up until 2015 in the OECD books are kind of written in stone. So what it's meant since then is that art, culture, creativity cannot be innovative formally. You know, there's no tax breaks if you're a kind of a creative R&D company. Uh, if you're trying to do new things in art, you can't get the benefits that... Uh, uh, kind of the tax regimes and others have expected that new real innovations will create. So they've been kind of locked off. And what it's meant is that those sectors haven't thought of themselves as being innovators. And it's mad. Like, it's mad. If you look at the history of the human race, to think that artists and creatives and, you know, that they're not innovative or important is just like a wild misreading of human history. So to start kind of forcing the language of R&D like to me onto it is, is super important and a lot of it comes from some brilliant work that's been done over the last six or seven years by people like Hassan Bakshi who now runs the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Center to kind of start defining what this means you know partly in economic terms because gosh you, you know DCMS and, Co and the Treasury need to measure what this means and and then provide the incentives back to the economic system but partly so that culturally like the organizations that innovate every day get it and get the chance to feel like they're doing it and know that they're doing it because, you know, economists have not been kind to art over the last 250 years. You know, Adam Smith has this thing where he talks about, you know, the productive economy here and that there's this non-productive economy, which is housewives, ballet dancers and madmen kind of sitting over here. Right? So yeah, we've got to It sounds more fun, right? but less useful. I mean, well, it's, it's, it sounds awesome. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's where you want to be, right? You don't want to be with the boring industrialist. You want to be out there with the crazy people and the dancers. So, you know, having a good time. So, but, uh, you know, I think it's important that we describe this process as, you know, being earlier stage, not necessarily innovation, which is close to market all the time. Like, there's an imperative on innovation to kind of produce or carry over. R&D is about experiment and learning. And that, to me, is like the, mass the massively the most important thing. I do think the R&D language is a really interesting thing. Also because a lot of the way that in the innovation language, you talked about disruption before, a lot of that language does feel quite dead now as well. Because it wasn't, these, these aren't, haven't been times of great productivity growth. These have been times of uh, everything stalling. So it's an interesting time to kind of reclaim the language. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, look, Innovation Labs, what was the first one? Eight, early 1890s in Germany in kind of industrial chemicals or whatever it is, right? And, you know, they're not new, but of course they're, they're, they're kind of extremely necessary evils and have been. But the better stuff, you know, at a point, like you say, where economically we've, we've not been innovating well, for me, the obvious truth of that is you have to go back earlier in the process. And you know, the practical truth is R&D precedes innovation, right? And so at the point where you don't necessarily know what questions to ask and what type of outcomes you're trying to produce, that's where the need for R&D becomes greater because get back earlier in the process, be more open to different questions, be more open to the process of kind of experiment itself. 
and that's where you're going to find new things because we you know look in a in a lot of the things that are going on in the world at the moment we don't really know a good direction of travel you know there's a huge there, there are too many very complex uncertainties uh out there to say well look that's going to get us you know sort of better future that we don't know you know there is a there's a vast mess so proper experimentation earlier stage at least allows us to define the questions better and i you know again that's a I think it's a massive, that's not a learning for the arts, that's a learning for everybody. Yeah, I think it's interesting both from an innovation standpoint and also one of the things that is true of the emerging of what the technology is coming forward now is it's easier to implement, if you like. There's less need for this kind of long rehearsal period before you get to actually making a thing. So it therefore creates a space perhaps to be more disciplined around R&D again, so to speak, or to kind of think about experimentation. That's, that's right. and, uh, if you ever read the book about, you know, the early stages of the... Uh, the Bell R&D labs, you know, they had to do a mammoth amount to be able to do anything at all. You know, there was a, like, it's not the case now, right? I mean, you can kind of get, you can get into a skunk works on an R&D project on pretty much anything in a couple of days, if you really got your head around it, right? You know, the, the, the volume of software tools out there, you know, the diversity of kind of different skills that you can bring together at speed now, like you can be up and running. I mean, of course there are some areas around, you know, early stage life sciences or something where of course that's not true but like there's a there's plenty of even that there's data sets out there you could be working with to kind of go do something so you know you just you know the ability to just go and with the right approach start doing and start thinking and start asking questions you know it's a that there's kind of no excuse almost by this stage yeah so I, when i ask some sort of slightly more lighthearted questions in a minute but just one 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 final one if you were advising i guess a leader of a cultural organization in your case that could be publishing or what are some of the things you think they should have in mind with a view to digital? I mean, are, are there things you think that they should make sure they have a good answer to or are thinking about this now? I mean, to me, it's always been, I have this stupid PowerPoint slide, which is uh, the iceberg of digital transformation, right? Which is because I'm too lazy to come up with a kind of proper theory, but I can just describe it in one slide. So just a triangle with the sea right across the middle of an iceberg. And the truth of digital is it's half the things you can see and half the things you can't. So, you know, and you've got to do all of them well to do digital properly. So, you know, technology, process, people, funding are the horrible hard bits underneath. And, you know, technology infrastructure in particular has been the kind of death point of most processes of, cult of digital transformation in the cultural sector and frankly, probably most, most other places. Um, you know, the bits you can see, you've got to do as brilliantly as possible. And, you know, fundamentally what you can see is storytelling, you know, where where digital has really worked for cultural organizations is they are brilliant storytellers and they have brilliant stories to tell. So, you know, fantastic YouTube channels, brilliant podcasts, you know, fantastic kind of narrative experiments in virtuality is all there because the material's there to work from. So, you know, find the way to tell those stories properly. And, and the really interesting thing from having done that on numerous occasions is that by doing the storytelling properly, you get the cultural transformation, you know, that, you know, what was really interesting at the British Museum, you know, super complicated organization. Like I could, it's hard to describe how complicated it is. Although if you've been reading the news in the last couple of months, you may get a sense of the complexity because of the, the difficult things that have happened there now, which suggests a kind of managerial and complex culture that, that, you know, has, has, has kind of fallen down now, but there everything we did that succeeded there worked because we got some, you know, frankly, we got the YouTube channel really good, really quickly. And it just opened up a kind of progressive culture towards digital. Exactly the same thing happened in the National Gallery, getting 
the director, Gabrielli Mel Boss, you know, to be the face of digital storytelling there, you know, first person on Facebook Live, first, you know, first person to all these new domains worked phenomenally well to kind of let the whole organization follow behind into the digital space. And, you know, that to me is the kind of, I, I, I don't know how applicable that lesson is elsewhere across the, uh, uh, across industry, but I said in creativity, it really counts is that get your digital storytelling right and the organization will follow you, follow with you into the digital domain. Okay. I'm conscious of time. So we're going to go into some rapid, quick fire questions. So you don't need to think about too much. Just that's the, okay. that's the help. Just, just around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a Monday afternoon as we record, so let's see where you go. So number one is, uh, where do you go when you procrastinate? Here, this is my grey box. I live here, uh, and uh, it's it's my space for thinking. It's the one bit in my house I can escape my kids. They know not to come near. Right, uh, and as a, it it symbolises a kind of virtual space as well as a physical one where uh, I get the good thinking done. Or I stand at the side of a sports pitch watching my kids running around doing stuff and pretend to watch them but think about something else instead. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, what is the one word your friends would use to describe you? My friends? Annoying. But then my friends. Annoying, annoying, rude, sarcastic, difficult, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. colleagues, different question, but uh, yeah, those would definitely be the things <laughs> my friends. Okay. Two kids. And then uh, what three things can you not live without? Black hoodies, Nike trainers, uh, my kids. Kids as well, you remember them. It's good to see them, you know. So, what advice would you give to your, your younger self? Shut up. Kids, sort of virtually, I guess, similar. So, you know, so. <laughs> so, and then two more. If you were a benevolent dictator for a day, what would you do? Uh, establish democracy. And on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Either zero or eleven, depending on which bit of me you know best. Good answers. Good answers. This is very good. <laughs> so concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.